our culture, Christmas is something that many people look forward to and something that many people don't. It has become for us in our culture a, a celebration that's great for people who have it all together. And yet, if the dream is not there, if it is not this picture-perfect uh, image of, of what we imagine it to be, then we feel like we've missed out on something. The biblical picture of Christmas is far different, far more realistic. It, it approaches that in, in many different ways, but in one of the ways it does so is in Matthew's gospel. He gives us, in Jesus' genealogy, the, the names of five hurting women, five women who faced great challenges and difficulties in their lives, and he highlights them as if to say, Christmas is for them too, if, and, and almost to lift them up, to elevate them, and to uh, show that Jesus stands with them and for them. Uh, today, we're going to consider the first of those, a woman by the name of Tamar, and see God's love for an abused woman. Now, in his book, Jesus in the Margins, Rick McKinley tells the story of a woman named Tiffany, a 31-year-old woman who experienced uh, abuse growing up, and she wrote a series of letters to him, and I want to read you a portion of the first. She says, at the time, I really didn't understand what was happening, but I knew that it wasn't normal. I was too scared to tell anyone, and because he was a family member, I felt that somehow my mom and dad allowed it to happen. Looking back, I can see that that wasn't true, but at the time, I didn't know any better. The abuse continued until I was 12, and I told my mom what was happening. She cried so loud and for so long. I realized then the gravity of what had happened. I've never been able to scrub the sick feeling off my soul put there through the abuse. So I just go through life feeling that if anyone ever knew who I was on the inside, they would simply reject me. Now, statistics tell us that Tiffany's experience is not as unique as we wished it was. And maybe you can relate to some of the feelings that she expresses in her letter. In the genealogy of Jesus, you have in Matthew's account a list of what you would normally have, fathers and their sons. But he pauses at five important moments to single out five women. And so when we come across Tamar's name, we're supposed to ask, well, who's she? Why, why is she so important? What's special about her? What's her connection to Jesus? And so it's with those questions that uh, we want to come to our text this morning and ask, answer the question that Matthew invites us to, to reflect on as we think about Christmas, uh, as we read Jesus' genealogy. And so to do that, I want you to uh, turn with me, if you would, to Genesis chapter 38. Genesis chapter 38, and I'll read uh, our passage today in several sections, starting at verse 6. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in the rack in front of you, and uh, you can uh, just look up the very first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 38, verses 6 to 11. 
And Judah took a wife for, for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, go into your brother's wife and perform, perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. This is the word of God. Now Tamar's father-in-law is introduced first. And maybe when you hear the word Judah, you think of that famous, famous patriarch, the, the, one of the sons of Israel who would go on to become leader among his brothers. You probably think of him as the, when you think of Lion of the tribe of Judah, this is, this is someone to be honored and respected. This is, must be a, he must have been a great man. But when Tamar met Judah, she didn't have any of those impressions. She would see him with, with no signs of promise or virtue. He had just masterminded the plot in the previous chapter. He had just masterminded the plot to sell his brother into slavery. Now in verse 1, uh, just, just before where I read for you in verse 1, it ominously says of him, Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside. He's turned aside from his brothers, turned aside from his family, and he seems to prefer the company of Canaanites to Israelites. Now, in a book that describes the great care of his grandfather showed in discerning his choice of a marriage partner uh, with, uh, with Isaac, you, you had this elaborate plan to find a wife that would be pleasing to the Lord and a good match for him. It, that, that's the, there was great attention given to that earlier in the book of Genesis. Or with Judah's father, uh, there is a, a, a great attention given to the time spent in the courtship and, and pursuing a, a wife. With all of that detail, with, we are, are, are looking for how will how will Judah's experience of pursuing a wife be described? We're jarred, frankly, when you read of him in verses 2 and 3, the simple words, he took her and went into her. You read that and you think, who is this man? He doesn't seem to show any sign of virtue, no sign of seeking the Lord's will, no sign of, of honor. And Tamar was probably entertaining all of those thoughts for herself. Who is this man? She knew that he was, he was rich. He, God had blessed Israel and his descendants. He knew that this was a man of means, but he just seemed to take what he, want, take what he wanted and uh, had no sense of, of honor as he did. So when he came looking for a wife for his firstborn, Ur, we're not surprised to see as little 
as little sensitivity or grace in the way that uh, it is described in him pursuing uh, a daughter-in-law as, uh, as it described his wife. Verse 6 just says, And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. Now, Tamar probably didn't have any say in the matter. In her day, most women didn't. All she probably knew, Judah was rich, and he had, he had come looking for a, son, a, a daughter-in-law for his son. Her entire marriage is summarized in just one verse. Verse 7. It says, But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Now, there's so much that you don't learn about a person until after the wedding, right? You learn things about your spouse that you didn't know when you were dating, right? Some of you, it wasn't until after the wedding that you, you realized, my, sm my spouse doesn't smell as good as they did when we were dating. Some of you didn't realize until after the wedding that my spouse just isn't real good at picking up after himself. They're, they're not really good at, at some of these things that I kind of had hoped for. Laundry just doesn't seem to be their thing. Maybe you didn't find out until after the wedding that your spouse really isn't into cooking. People learn different things about their spouse after the wedding. With, uh, with Tamar, she learned that her husband, though he had come in with a lot of, uh, a lot of expensive goods and a lot of flocks and uh, a lot to support, he was an evil man. And he made life very painful for her. And it, it is that kind of realization, frankly, that many people make today still after the wedding. Well, when you're in a situation like that, many people just want it to end. They just want this situation, this person who is causing me such pain. I want them taken away. Sometimes people will will shake their fists at God and say, if there is a good God, surely he wouldn't allow this to continue. Surely he would, he would not tolerate someone like this. But justice in a world filled with sin and sinners is often more complicated than we think. And Tamar got what many people would have wanted. Tamar had the experience of seeing her husband, this evil man who had created such pain and difficulty for her, she saw him struck down by the Lord. It's actually the first person in scripture noted as having been directly struck down by the Lord for his sin. There's been the flood, there's been Sodom and Gomorrah up until this point. There's been groups that have turned away from him and just have been corrupt as a society. But this is the first individual who is on the receiving end of the Lord's punishment. And it tells you just how seriously God takes the, uh, the evil and the abuse that a person can inflict in a marriage. He won't tolerate it. But at the same time, justice in this life can often be complicated. While she got perhaps what she wanted, while this evil man who created such pain for her was taken away, it also created collateral damage. 
Ur's death, her husband Ur's death, leaves Tamar a widow at a time when being a widow was extremely dangerous, extremely vulnerable. It wasn't as if she could just go out and get a job. She now was struggling to support herself. It left her childless at a time when not having a child was a mark of disgrace in their society. And so while she has gotten justice, it has come with collateral damage. It has come at a personal cost to herself. Judah, her father-in-law, would be her natural protector. He would be the one that you would naturally look to to take responsibility and to uh, provide for her support and care. But it appears that he is only caring about continuing his uh, firstborn son's line. When you hear him in verse 8, he's more concerned with that than his daughter-in-law's disgrace. He just says to uh, his son, Onan, perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. Now, the problem with the secondborn of Judah, Onan, the problem for him was that with his older brother out of the picture, now he had become the firstborn. That meant that he received the inheritance of a firstborn, the blessing of a firstborn. And so if he were to have a, a child for, uh, for Tamar, all of that would change. It would impact him financially. It would impact his status, his place in the family. Instead of getting two-thirds of the inheritance, he'd be left with a quarter. And perhaps like his father, perhaps like his older brother, he was a selfish man that wanted as much uh, for himself as he could get. So Onan decides to sleep with his sister-in-law, but ensure that she doesn't have a child. And he does so again and again with no regard for her, only with regard to himself. And again, the Lord sees it all. He, he is intimately involved and concerned about the, the pain and the abuse that can happen in a marriage. And he is going to bring justice. In verse 11, we, we have uh, uh, the, the fallout from that. The Lord puts an end to Onan's life. He strikes him down as well. But now, you have, now you've had two sons who have, been, uh, who have been put to death by the Lord, two sons who have mistreated Tamar, and she is now uh, reeling from that. And the final nail in her coffin seems to come in verse 11. It says, Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a, wood, a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. Judah sends Tamar back to her father's home in disgrace. That father had no legal obligation for her at this point. He has probably already paid a dowry to provide for her in, ca in cases when exactly this kind of situation might, have, might happen. And so for Judah to send her back to a, a person that no longer has any uh, legal responsibility to care for her is to say, I don't care about your needs. I don't take any... I don't feel any obligation or responsibility for you. 
She goes back with no status, no support, and no heir. And it's like he sees the tragedy in, in, her, in her life as her fault. He, he doesn't take any responsibility for the behavior of his sons. He, he doesn't take any responsibility for her care. He just sees her as a cancer that he needs to cut out and rid his family of. Let's pick up the next episode in her story in verses 12 to 19. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shears, he and his friend, Hira the Adulamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law was going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up and sat at the entrance to a name which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, come, let me come in to you, for he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, what will you give me that you may come in to me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, if you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, what pledge shall I give you? She replied, your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. Now, by this point, Tamar has realized probably what she has suspected all, of, all along. Judah feels no care, no responsibility to her, and he is not going to give the, his youngest son to her in marriage, as was his responsibility. He was not going to uh, provide for her an heir, uh, a, a, a child, as was his responsibility. And she realizes she either needs to act or she will die destitute and disgraced. We need to read her actions through the culture in which she lived in. Uh, she was not under any uh, of our modern uh, laws or even later biblical prescriptions. She develops a plan to ensure that D Judah will fulfill his responsibility to provide her an heir. So in verse 13, she's told that Judah is going to shear his sheep. This was, for, a, shep for a, a, a shepherd, this was payday. This was the point at which these sheep that you had endured the smell of, you had dealt with the, the feeding and the care of, now finally you could get something from them. And so uh, cashing in on the sheep shearing was not far off and... Uh, Tamar knows, what she, knowing what she knows about her father-in-law, she decides if it is payday, if he is going to be celebrating the, the shearing of his sheep, he'll probably be drunk and he will, if he has an opportunity, probably be looking for a prostitute. Just as J Judah had deceived Tamar in telling her to wait for Shelah to grow up, just as Jacob had deceived Isaac in taking the part and trying to get the blessing that was uh, uh, his uh, older brothers due, now Tamar deceives Judah 
by dressing as a prostitute. Now, as they no negotiate the price, Tamar asks for his signet, his cord, and his staff as a pledge. In the ancient Near East, if you were to give someone your signet or your seal, it was the thing that you used in all of the important documents, all of the, the treaties and the covenants that you would make. It was like handing over your birth certificate and your driver's license. It's clear that Judah will do whatever, he, whatever it takes to get what he wants. And so he very unwisely and... and uh, Tamar was very well aware of his lack of wisdom. He very unwisely ha hands them over in a pledge to a prostitute or whom he thinks is a prostitute. And as you just pause to reflect on the picture that we have of Judah at this point, it is a shocking depiction of a man who you think, if this is the man that God will use and through whom blessing will come to this world, what on earth is God thinking? How could God use such a man like this? Who is this person? And yet, this dark, ugly picture of someone without self-control or virtue is part of the, the plan that we understand of God. God often will use the evil of this world, the evil people of this world, to accomplish his good purposes. And here, he will use, in fact, the sin of this man to bless Tamar. That's the second way that God shows his love to her. He uses evil for good. Not only does he punish abusers, but he uses evil for good. Through this single encounter, God blesses Tamar with a child. And if you have ever tried to have a child, you know that this doesn't usually work so easily. This is, this is not a, a, a regular thing. It's God showing his mercy to a woman who had been mistreated and abused. It's God using, in fact, Judah's lack of self-control, his lack of wisdom, his lack of discernment, to minister to a, 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 a woman who would otherwise die destitute and in disgrace. And it's often how God, God works. Usually we want him to do the first thing that we saw. Just strike him down, take him out. That's the kind of justice in, in that, that we'd like to see. And there will be a final judgment. God promises that he will make all things right. But as we saw with the, the two older brothers, justice in a world of sin and sinners is complex and often comes with collateral damage. And so often what he does in this time in between is to use evil for good purposes. He blesses his people, he blesses the righteous even as he uses uh, the the, the sin and the sinfulness of uh, people who would oppose him. It's like Joseph who famously said in Genesis 50, 20, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. God can take an evil, evil intention, an evil action, and twist it in such a way that he uses it to accomplish good purposes. If any of you have studied Judo, 
uh, you know that one of the things that a skilled uh, judo practitioner does is use the momentum of the attacker against them. That you can actually uh, take somebody's uh, attack and movement against you to accomplish uh, their, their defeat. And it is something similar going on as God uses the evil of this wor world to accomplish his good purposes. That's why Paul can say in Romans 8, 20, 28, for we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. doesn't say that everything is good. We live in a world of sin and sinners, but there is a good God carrying out his good plans and good purposes for those who love him and entrust themselves to him. Tamar, at this point, has experienced the, the abuse and the evil of uh, two men in her life and her, her father-in-law who compounded all of it. But God has punished her abusers and he has used the evil of, of these men for his good purposes, to be good to her. She's been used by men and treated as worthless, but God sees her. He understands all that she has experienced and he is working and acting in compassion. Follow along as I read the conclusion in verses 24 to 26. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immor immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify who these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son Shelah. And he did not know her again. In verse 24, notice how the news is conveyed to Judah. It says, Tamar your daughter-in-law has been immoral. It, it, he has sent her away. He has sent her home. He has probably been years at this point since he has seen her. It's almost as if he needs to be reminded who she is, reminded of their, their connection. Oh, yeah, she's your daughter-in-law, by the way. He has had nothing to do with her. He has cared nothing for her support. He has shown no concern for her. Now that he found, found out that she's pregnant, now that he's found out that she has uh, supposedly uh, performed some uh, act of immorality, now he's all uh, interested. Now, oh, now she's my daughter-in-law. Now he starts to act as if this is uh, a concern to him. When he hears that she's pregnant, he calls for her to be brought out and burned. Some of you are reading that and thinking, well, that's just the way they did things back then. That was, you know, he didn't really have a choice. That was kind of the way things were. Well, it wasn't the way things were. This was the most extreme form of punishment that, that uh, you, you could give because it even denied the person a proper burial, which in their day was incredibly uh, sacred and important. This wasn't just, 
Judah going, going through the motions, just doing what he had to do as a father-in-law. He takes the most extreme form of punishment for his daughter-in-law, and we're left asking, like all of the initial readers would have been asking, what was that for? Why so extreme? Why that reaction? I wonder if you can guess why he might have reacted so strongly. I think it's the same reason that he sent her away to her father's home. And the reality is, we see this today as well. When people feel guilt, one of the things that they do is they self-righteously condemn other people because I think if I can put them down, then I feel like I'm a better person. If I can prove that they are unrighteous, then that makes me feel a little more righteous. And so he says, take her out and burn her. How could she? Immorality. How dare she? And Tamar waits till the last minute. She's being dragged out. You can just almost imagine them. They've got the fire prepared for her. She waits till the last moment when she knew all of the eyes would be on her. Everybody is looking. The Judah is sitting above, looking ceremonious, looking self-righteous, smug. And at just, the, at just that moment, she announces, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she holds up the signet, the cord, and the staff. In that moment, Judah sees himself with a clarity that I believe he has never seen himself before in his life. All the scales are off, all the masks are gone, and he sees that he is an evil man. He sees all that he has done. He sees how desperate he has made Tamar, how he had failed her, how he had deceived her. He sees how he has failed in his responsibility as a father-in-law. He sees the evil in his sons that he had allowed to just grow and continue. He sees the failings in his own life. He sees not, not only the immorality that is now exposed before all, that, who, all of the people who were holding him in esteem and honor, but compounding that immorality, now he sees on top of that his own hypocrisy. And finally, he says those words that I believe Tamar needed to hear more than anything else in her life. She is more righteous than I. He recognizes in that moment his own sin and all that he has done to her. Those words, I believe, gave Tamar relief, and they were a turning point in the life of Judah. If you, if you were to mark Judah's life, and as you go back and read his account in the book of Genesis, you will see a man who was just going down and down and down farther in sin, and at this moment is a turning point where he recognizes his own sin, and he will be a changed man. 
The next time we see Judah, he's back with his brothers. He's supporting his family. Following that, we see him uh, eventually offering up his own life to protect someone more vulnerable. He's a changed man. God has humbled him, and God will use this event in his life to first break him and then to allow him to rebuild in that brokenness till he will eventually become one of whom is worthy of the title, worthy of leadership in the, in the clan. And Tamar has been vindicated. God has honored her in the eyes of those who had condemned her. And Matthew has done the same. By just putting her name in this genealogy, it is like he is lifting her up and honoring her before all who would ever reflect on this Christmas message. It's his way of saying, if you've been mistreated, if you've been abused, if justice in this world still leaves you feeling like that didn't help, that hasn't solved things, if people's condemnation still makes you feel dirty inside, know that Jesus came for people like you. Know that he can redeem the evil that people have done to you and vindicate you before those who have shamed you. Because while Judah wanted Tamar to die for his sins, Jesus came and he died for our sins. And so he can reverse the evil of this world. His, his final judgment will will address the evil of this world, but there will be vindication as well. He will lift up and honor those who have followed him. I read a portion of the letter from a woman named Tim, uh, Tiffany at the beginning of this message, but it wasn't the last letter that she wrote, and it wasn't the last episode in her life. McKinley included another one of her letters, and I want to read a portion of that. She said, I realize that God has loved me the whole time. The abuse taught me I was worthless, but Christ has taught me that I'm precious to him. In his love, I could really forgive the person who hurt me and move on. Can't say it's cut and dried or that the pain is gone forever, but it is different now. I'm still single, but I don't give myself away to guys anymore. I see now that the love I was looking for can only be found in Jesus. I'm a grateful daughter who is just trying to say, stay in my father's love. Christmas is for people like Tef Tiffany. It's for people like Tamar. It's people like you and me and we enter into it through faith in a savior who gave his life to die for us. Let's look to him now in prayer. Oh, Father in heaven, it's your love that we truly need. It's you that we truly need. Ultimately, you are the only one who can make things right and minister to our deepest needs. So thank you for the way that you healed Tamar and Tiffany through your love. Would you do it again today? 
Would you do that in our hearts? Minister to those here this morning who've been mistreated or condemned. Show them how precious they are in your sight. Show them the hope that there is in Jesus. And help them to step out of the shadows into your glorious light. Thank you that you're the God who brings good out of the evil in this world. Thank you that you opened up Judah's eyes to see his sin and changed him. Would you do that again today? Would you open up our eyes to our sin? Would you help us to see the hypocrisy that often gets in the way? And would you change us? Make us more like your son. And when you lead us to the cross, where our repentance meets your forgiveness. For we ask you in Jesus' name.